Good morning, everyone. Hope you had a nice Thanksgiving. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Um, he hang up the guitar, break right back with you.
All right, uh, good morning again to all of you. Could you turn your Bibles, if you haven't done so already, to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And we're going to continue our study of uh, Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, today we'll be uh, finishing off Ephesians 2, 12, where we're going to be noting today the fourth and fifth descriptions of Gentile Christians before their justification. This will constitute our 106th hour in Ephesians. And uh, those who uh, might be new, uh, this is uh, an expository type ministry I teach, teach three times a week. Saturday, Tuesdays, and Thursdays at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. I'm located in uh, in Huntsville, I, uh, Alabama, and that's uh, my address is six. My mailing address, in case you want to uh, send us a gift, it's uh, 603 O'Shaughnessy Avenue, Northeast Huntsville, Alabama. Again, 603 O'Shaughnessy Avenue, Huntsville, uh, Alabama. 35801 is the zip code. And Winston uh, Bible Ministries, and we're a nonprofit. So if you uh, like to give to us, make out the check to that it's, and also uh, it's tax deductible because we're a church nonprofit, and also you can give through PayPal at our website uh, at www.wenstrom.org and uh, of course um, I'm a pastor that was ordained in 1998 at Grace Bible Church in Somerset Massachusetts and I'm also the pastor of Doctrinal Bible Church here in Huntsville Alabama which is right down the road at 1215 Russell Street Northeast here in Huntsville about a half mile down the road so if you're ever in the area we teach on Wednesday evenings at 630 p.m. And Sunday mornings, we have two sessions, and we begin those uh, at uh, 9.30, and we have a break in between sessions. And uh, right now, we're presently in the book of Habakkuk on Sundays over there. And on uh, Wednesdays, we're going to be going to study on the Day of the Lord, that doctrine. And so we'll be on that for a little while. And uh, so uh, so the same things I do here at Western Bible Ministries, I do over there. And so between books, I do different doctrines of the Christian faith at this uh, particular um, with Wenstrom Bible Ministries. Also, if you like to read, there's plenty of re reading material at Wenstrom.org, over 1,700 written articles, uh, the exhaustive, exhaustive exegesis and exposition of all the books that have done over the last 30 years, and also the different doctrines of the Christian faith. We set it up in a systematic theology. And uh, also, uh, we have different Greek word studies, if you're into that a little bit, and uh, also different personages in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, we got prep school material there as well for young people. And also I, I write my own Christian music and uh, I'm actually in the process of writing a new collection of 14 songs and uh, they're on our Wenstrom.org page and you can see you know, the, um, me performing the songs or you can get it on audio. Uh, we also uh, have another, uh, several di other different websites. We have uh, one at uh, uh, Academy EDU where I put a, a lot of my written articles, over 700 written articles are over there. And uh, at the Academy EDU, you can access, go just Google me, Bill Wenstrom, and you'll see it, or Wenstrom Bible Ministries. And also, we have a YouTube page, of course, and we've been on there since 2011. In fact, we use streaming video by YouTube. And uh, so uh, we, uh, we also have, we have different playlists, all my music's up there, and also the different doctrines we've done since 2011, and uh, also the uh, diff uh, different uh, uh, doctrines we've done, and all different books we've done over the years, is, they're up there since we've done since 2011 and also we have uh logos sermons it's called actually it used to be faith life sermons now it's called logos sermons and i got all my mp3 mp4s up there now as well and uh, also uh we have uh, thanks to them we also have podcasts that itunes spotify amazon music so when i put up my mp3s for the for these uh classes uh, they go right to those podcasts. So just search for us under Wednesday Bible Ministries under iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, and I think and I think that's about it for. All. And also, just to also a reminder for those who are regularly following the uh, ministry, um, 
the uh, our, our Christmas break is coming up, and I haven't determined what dates those are going to be, and uh, so uh, so I'll be uh, I'll be announcing that very shortly, probably this Saturday. I'll probably be doing it. I'm actually going to figure out what I'm going to uh, how long I'm going to be. Um, usually about a month is what I usually take, and uh, during that time I usually people say, oh, you, you want you going that. Go on vacation. You going somewhere? No, I really don't. You know, usually, if I do go, I go see my family. I don't know if I'm gonna be able to go there this year, but uh, um, but I usually work, so <laughs> you know. So I'm always. I'll probably do something. Write some new songs and stuff. Hopefully, during that period, get get caught up. You know, it takes a lot of uh, work to uh, research these books, and uh, I usually like to take a, be about three or four months in advance of teaching these different lessons I got I've been four three four months in advance finished these already so so I like to keep it that's why I'm able to cover a lot of ground and, and do keep the schedule I'm doing I actually teach six times a week uh, three classes a week with three over at DVC and three here and the reason why I'm able to do this because of preparation I do I, I, I plan things way out in advance so if I was if I was going to recommend anybody in the ministry when they're you know about the future I plan start doing lessons now planning out those lessons now before you get into your own pastorate and the reason why I do this and get in advance because I've seen other guys uh, get, uh, including my own pastor, you know, get into situations where, you know, they're cramming the night before. I, you should never be cramming the night before. You, in fact, uh, it's a detriment to the congregation, it's a detriment to the pastor and the interpretation. You can't rush through it. So I like to take my time through it and get it right. And uh, so I plan it out like three or four months in advance. Uh, so that's why I'll take advantage of this time off and uh, do some uh, do some work to get a, to get a, to keep up. And uh, because also when you when you do that, you you also can plan. Uh, there's always things that happen in ministry that uh, you aren't planning for. You know, there's people problems. Somebody dies. You got to do a funeral. You got to do a wedding. Uh, you got to you know. There's a lot of things happen. You have you get sick or something. You know, something happens. Whatever. So there's uh you always uh it's a good idea to to um, not be cramming the night before on a Bible class. You should be doing that well in advance. And uh, so, um, and that's the only reason really why I can do six times a week. And uh, a lot of these lessons I have that I teach over at DBC, I've taught here at Winston Bond Ministries. But when I go to teach it a second time, I'm always, uh, you know, updating stuff. And also, actually, I think it's, in some respects, it's almost better the second time around. For those who studied Habakkuk with me, like I'm doing uh, now with uh, DBC, I, I, I think it's, uh, I mean, I know it was good when I first taught it here for Winston Bond Ministries back in 2001. 2021 but i think it's uh it's even better now and uh, because the spirits uh open up some, my eyes about certain things uh with regards to that book in relation to the church in the in our country and the nations around the world so uh that's uh, about it for the announcements i can think of and uh hopefully you can see a little bit background of my audio of my 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 uh office here and um so um this is where i work out of my little this i spend most of my life in <laughs> In, in my in my office and uh so anyways uh it's uh, good to have you and i hope you had a good thanksgiving and uh i had a good thanksgiving i spent it with the peaks over here buddy pastor buddy peak who i took over for his family uh, they're all in the ministry over there and uh, they invited me to this place they have over in scottsboro it's a nice place on the lake so it was good i, got, I ate a lot of food and got to play cornball with my buddy over there cam he's like a seven-year-old boy he's he's, he's a cute kid so he, he likes to, you know, we'll, we'll play cornball. And for those of you who know me, I'm kind of a kid at heart anyways. So I, have, I always have time for the kids to play with the kids and have fun. Like my nieces, they remind me of my nieces and nephews. They're always, Uncle Billy, Uncle Billy. But now they're all my uncle nieces, my aunts and uh, my, my uncles. My uh, nieces and nephews are all grown up. In fact, I have uh, great nieces and a great niece and a great ne nephew. So 
they're getting big too, so I haven't seen them in a while. So anyways, uh, that's about it, and uh, let's take a moment of silent prayer. As is our custom, we take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves to determine if we're in fellowship with God. Because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. We maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit and Colossians 3.16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing or distracting to you, do what 1 Peter 5.7 says. Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us. We thank you for another day to study your almighty word and to learn the things that we've been learning in your word through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's fantastic. They're awesome. And uh, we treasure these, these, uh, your thoughts and who you, your plan and revealing yourself and your ways to us and, and what you've done for us in the past through both the Son and the Spirit and, then, and in the future what you'll do for us through the Son and the Spirit. We thank you, Father, for this great plan that you've given to us to become like your Son, Jesus Christ. And we just thank you, Father, for all that you've done so that we can do that, so we can accomplish what you've prepared for us. And we know that this Christian way of life is a supernatural way of life that demands a supernatural means of execution, and you provided that through your union identification with your Son, Jesus Christ, our union identification with Him, and your Word, the power of the Spirit. And so, Father, we pray that this lesson today would help us in walking with you and growing up spiritually. And uh, thank you for this study in Ephesians, and thank you for those who are watching this uh, class live or through later data recordings. And uh, I think, thank you for them and the various media platforms and podcasts and websites you've given to us. I pray you use them mightily. And uh, I just thank you for uh, Titus uh, Thompson and what he does in maintaining that website for us. And I just thank you for the people who you've raised up in addition to him. And uh, over the years that have been uh, good stewards with the time, talent, and treasure and truth that you've given them, and I've been praying for this ministry and supporting this financially or serving in it, I thank you for each and every one of them. And I pray today that you would help me by the part of Spirit to provide for them their necessary spiritual nourishment, help your people in the audience to learn, understand and apply and concentrate and uh, to, to, in order that they might make personal application of what they're being taught. And please break down any barriers that sin and Satan would put up that would hinder that from happening. I pray you would empower me 
to be a vessel to communicate your full counsel today to your people with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power. I pray there be no problems with recordings. The video and the audio and the upload of the various, the, the recordings, uh, the, uh, there be no problems uploading their recordings of the various website, podcasts, and media platforms that you've given to us, Father. Protect them from the evil one, and thank you for doing so, and use them mightily, and I know you are. And uh, so, Father, we pray for this service, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. If you haven't turned there already, please go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And today I'm going to be reading from the uh, uh, the NEB, which is the New English Bible translation. Let's look at, We'll read the whole chapter, and then we'll read my translation of the same chapter, and then we'll finish off verse 12 today by noting the fourth and fifth descriptions of Gentile Christians prior to their justification. So if you're a Gentile Christian, this is a description. These are descriptions of you and I because I'm a Gentile Christian as well. So it says in Ephesians 2, 1, and again, I'm reading from the New English Bible. Time was when you were dead in your sins and transgressions. Oh, wickedness, excuse me. <laughs> when you followed the evil ways of this present age, when you obeyed the commander of the spiritual powers of the year, the spirit that is now at work among God's rebel subjects. We too were once of their number. We all lived our lives in sensuality and obeyed the promptings of our own instincts and notions. In our natural condition, we, like the rest, lay under the dreadful judgment of God. But God, rich in mercy, for the great love He bore us, brought us to life with Christ even when we were dead in our sins. It is by His grace you were saved. And in union with Christ Jesus, He raised us up and enthroned us with Him in the heavenly realms, so that He might display in the ages to come how immense are the resources of His grace and how great is kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by His grace you were saved through trusting Him, it is not your own doing. It is God's gift, not a reward for work done. There is nothing for anyone to boast of. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to devote ourselves to the good deeds for which God has designed us. Remember, then, your former condition, you Gentiles, as you were outwardly you, the uncircumcision, so called by those who were called the circumcision, but only with reference to an outward rite. You were at that time separate from Christ, strangers to the community of Israel, outside God's covenants and the promise that goes with them. Your world was a world without hope and without God. But now in union with Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near through the shedding of Christ's blood. For he himself, he is himself, our peace. Gentiles and Jews, he has made the two one and in his own body of flesh and blood has broken down the enmity which stood like a dividing wall between them. For he annulled the law with its rules and regulations so as to create out of the two a single new humanity in himself, thereby making peace. This was his purpose to reconcile the two and a single body to God through the cross on which he killed the enmity. So he came and he proclaimed the good news, peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are nearby. For through him we both alike have access to the Father in the one spirit. Thus, you are no longer aliens in a foreign land, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household. You are built upon the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets, and Christ Jesus himself is the foundation stone. In him, the whole building is bonded together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you too are being built with all the rest into a spiritual dwelling for God. Uh, so a couple of things before I read my translation of that particular chapter. Uh, remember, where uh, for those who might be coming into this series a little uh, late here, uh, for the first time maybe, uh, Ephesians was written by Paul 
He is identified as the author. The early church didn't believe in synonymity. We pointed that out in detail. It's a circular letter, as we pointed out. And that means it not only went to the Christian community in Ephesus, but was also uh, directed to all the various Christian communities in the Roman province of Asia, which we could call today Turkey. And uh, it was written during Paul's first Roman imprisonment between 60 and 62 AD. Around the time, same time, he wrote Colossians and Philemon. In fact, the same man carried this epistle, Ephesians, and Colossians, and um, also um, Philemon, uh, Tychicus, and he, he delivered it. And uh, we also see Philippians was another one of those prison epistles, we call them. So uh, Paul is writing primarily to Gentile Christians. We know that because he identifies them as such, as we saw in Ephesians 2.11. And so uh, we see that in the first chapter, uh, after introduction, uh, the identification of the, the uh, author and the recipients, uh, we have a prologue, which is found in verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1. It contains a triadic pattern, meaning each member of the Trinity is mentioned in relation to their work on behalf of the church-age believer. The believer's union and identification with Christ is identified by the prepositional phrase we see in, 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 this, in that section, in the beloved, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in Him, in whom. They're referencing uh, the believer's justification with Christ uh, through faith in Christ and also their correspondingly their union identification with Christ through the baptism of the Spirit. And because all those spiritual blessings that we have are the result of being justified through faith in Jesus Christ and simultaneously being placed in union with Christ through the baptism of the Spirit at our justification. God looks at us now as crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with His Son. Why? Because we're under the headship of the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Paul talks about this in Romans 5, 12 through 21. He also mentions it in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 as well. So we're, we used to be under the headship of the la first Adam, place of cursing. Now we're under the headship of the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And we're now members of his body and also the bride of Christ, according to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 23 to the end of the chapter. Uh, he, we're the bride of Christ. And so we are going to, con we constitute with Jew Jewish Christians in the church age, uh, we constitute the new humanity, which along with Jesus Christ, our head, our bridegroom, will dispossess Satan and the fallen angels at the second advent to Christ, which ends Daniel's 70th weeks in the times of the Gentiles, which we're presently involved in at this time in history. And so we get into uh, verses 15 through 23. We have the first of two intercessory prayers, where our which, are, which is prompted. The first one is prompted by what Paul says in the verses 3 through 14. One, that the people he's writing to are justified through faith in Christ, in union with him through the baptism of the Spirit, and also they were practicing the command to love one another, which would maintain unity amongst themselves in the Christian community. And in particular, it would maintain the unity experientially among Jewish and Gentile Christians interacting with each other. Because uh, Jews and Gentiles back then had no association with each other. As we pointed out in the past, as in our study of Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22 is bring, bearing witness to, is that the law and the dietary regu regulations of the law uh, in, uh, prohibited or inhibited uh, people from Jews and, Jews and Gentiles eating with each other. And uh, the Jews were given those dietary regulations under the law to keep them from worshiping the, the pagan gods of the Canaanites, which they dispossessed. So the, the various foods that the, the Canaanites would eat were part of their worship of their false gods. So God didn't want them to eat with them and get influenced by them so that they worship these false gods, these, which are set up by Satan. So then we get to chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, 
And the first three verses of chapter 2 are very similar to verses 11 and 12 of the same chapter because they describe the pre-conversion or pre-justification state of Gentile Christians. Uh, In in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, we pointed out in great detail that the three great enemies of the human race and the church, uh, the indwelling sin nature, uh, which we received at the moment of physical birth uh, when uh, the imputation of Adam's sin, which makes us all physically alive but spiritually dead, and in need of the righteousness of God and grace. And we see we're also enslaved to sin and Satan and his cosmic system, which we're going to talk about again today. And it's the reason why I wrote the, uh, sang that song. And so uh, Satan's kingdom, and we're enslaved to his uh, sin and Satan and his cosmic system. And this is the state we were in. And Paul does that in verses 1 through 3 in order to accentuate the grace of God. Because despite this, as we pointed out, in verses 4 through 10, God made us alive with Christ through faith in Christ, the justification. And he raised us up and seated us with his son, Jesus Christ, at his right hand, despite the fact that we were dead in our sins and transgressions. And that's grace, meaning you don't earn it or deserve it. It was a gift. And God blessed us this way because of the merits of the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, and the merits of our union identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit. So you and I are a blessed people. We're, in fact, we're going to rule over this earth for a thousand years and on into eternity because we're the bride of Christ. Remember, Old Testament saints like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Daniel uh, are not in the same position as we are. Yes, they're going to be there in the kingdom and in, in the new heavens and the new earth, tribulational martyrs, uh, and also uh, Old Testament saints, and uh, they'll all be there. But we, the church age believer, co- constituted of, uh, of Jew and Gentile races, male and female, slave and free, we are the bride of Christ. And so we're going to dispossess Satan and the fallen angels at the second advent, as I pointed out. That's why Paul says to the Corinthians, who weren't exactly the model of Christian behavior, uh, you're going to judge angels. So even the least of us uh, are going to do that, as, as we say, because we're, the, we're going to dispossess Satan and the fallen angels at the second advent of Christ and bring in the kingdom. And so uh, this is what we got going on here. And then we get to verses 11 and 12. Again, Paul's describing the pre-conversion, pre-justification state of Gentile Christians and uh, in, in relation to the nation of Israel. And this is important. And uh, even uh, a lot of dispensationalists get messed up and all different stuff like that and Christians and understanding the church's relationship to Israel. And, and I'm, in fact, I'm up ready to put an updated uh, edition of my uh, Remnant of Israel series and uh, in written form, big article, and it's up there now, but I got an updated version of it. And I also did a series on it when I was in Marion, Iowa. We'll do it again when I get here at DBC. I'll teach that over there someday. But the, what we see in every generation, every dispensation, there's always a remnant of uh, Jewish believers. And today we have them in the church. We call them Messianic Jews. So they're one wing of the, of the Christian community. They, the Jewish Christian, Christian community in the church age, it started off primarily Jewish, uh, at the baptism of the Spirit in June of 33 AD when it first took place, the baptism of the Spirit. And Jewish believers, 3,000, became uh, born again and saved and received the gift of the Spirit and were identified with Christ and His crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session of the right hand of the Father. Then we see in Acts chapter 10, a Gentile believers became part of the church and they too were placed in union with Christ. Cornelius was the first one in him and his family in Acts chapter 10 records it for us. But the difference is we the Old Testament predicted this. Those who studied Romans 15 with me. The Old Testament and Paul quotes Isaiah, the Old Testament predicted Gentiles would get saved. It's just they didn't know what 
would, they didn't know what God would do during the church age. It was a mystery doctrine that he'd make Jewish and Gentile believers fellow heirs and fellow partakers of the promise through faith in Jesus Christ and union identification with him. So this is what we're going to, this is what we're into now because now Paul's setting the stage to accentuate the grace of God even as, just like he did in the first 10 verses by pointing out where they came from, these Gentile Christians. So this should prompt many things for us. Uh, let me see if I can, um, if I can find out. Um, there's several reasons. I'm just going through my notes here, my exegesis and exposition of uh, Ephesians. But there's several reasons why Paul is doing what he's doing here. Because he, he wants, there's, there's a purpose for why uh, he's doing the things he's doing and, and, and bringing out uh, our, pres- our previous state prior to our justification. And so this is very important that we, we understand. And let me give you my uh, list of these things. We put them out in the first lesson, I believe. And uh, so uh, let me see if I can find them here. Okay, here we go. No, that's not it. Hold on. Okay. Okay, here we go. Now, I just, I just want to point these out. I think it's very important to go over these things. You know, Paul tells them in Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 13, to remember. Remember what? Well, if you look at the Net Bible, it says in verse 11, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, I'll give you a big screen here, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision that is performed on the body by human hands, that you were at that time, prior to your justification, without the Messiah, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, just like he did in Ephesians 2, 4, in Christ Jesus, because of your faith in him at justification and your union identification with him, through the baptism of the Spirit at justification, you Gentiles who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. All right? So there's several reasons why Paul issues this command to the recipients of this letter to remember that they were brought near to God and His covenant people by the blood of Christ because of their faith in Christ, their justification, and their union and identification with Him, despite the fact that they never possessed a covenant relationship with Him or His covenant people. The first, we pointed out, is that it is designed to promote unity. It's designed to promote unity among the Jewish and Gentile Christian communities. In other words, the purpose of this command was to maintain unity experientially between these two communities. And the implication is that they would not enter into divisions so as to sever their relationship with each other. So this unity would be maintained experientially when these Gentile Christians practice the love of God when interacting uh, with members of the Jewish Christian community. Now, we noted in our introduction that this is the main purpose for the contents of this entire epistle. Unity experientially through the practice of the command to love one another. So this is indicated by the fact that Paul opens up the practical application of his teaching in the first three chapters by commanding the recipients of this letter, these Gentile Christians, to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in Ephesians 4.3. And this would be accomplished by living in a manner, by living in a manner worthy of their calling and by practicing humility, gentleness, patience, and tolerance of one another through the practice of this command to love one another, which Paul instructs them to do, and Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Thus, the motivation to practice the command to love one another, as we pointed out, is the second reason for this command in Ephesians 2.11. They're obligated to do so because God the Father exercised His love on behalf of them when they were spiritually dead and possessing absolutely no relationship with Him or His covenant people Israel. So as you can see, 
there are things that we can be doing in prayer and giving thanks to God for, and uh, it, it, because of what we're learning here, uh, and what he did for us at our justification, but it's also, it, the practical application also is to maintain unity exper- experientially in the Christian community. So in, in Paul's context, it was to maintain the, the unity between the Jewish and Gentile communities who prior to their justification had no contact with each other. So this was culture shock for both groups to get together with each other. And you see this with uh, Paul and, 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 and confronting in Galatians, uh, Timothy, uh, Peter. And it was very difficult. Remember, Peter was told in a vision in Acts chapter 10, prior to meeting Cornelius in his home, that it was all right to, to uh, have uh, go to a house and eat a meal with Gentile Christians now. Why? Because Jesus Christ, abrogate, uh, the, the dietary regulations of the law have been abrogated. And uh, we saw that in Mark 7, he did that. Now, the third reason we saw it, the third reason for this command in Ephesians 2.11 is to keep the Gentile Christians humble by preventing them from being arrogant in relation to their Jewish brothers and sisters. If God treated them according to his grace, and he did, which manifests his attribute of love, uh, when they were spiritually dead and possessing absolutely no relationship with him and his covenant people Israel, they should remain humble and not be arrogant towards those in the Jewish Christian community who do possess a covenant relationship with God. And again, this is what Paul was trying to teach them in uh, Romans, uh, the Roman Christian community in Romans 13, uh, 14. Again, remember, the Jewish, uh, the Gentile Christians are obligated to treat their brothers and sisters in Christ in the Jewish Christian community according to this same grace and love because God exercised his grace and love toward them when they were not his covenant people and possessed absolutely no relationship with him whatsoever. And the fourth reason, the fourth reason why Paul issues this command in Ephesians 2, 11 through 13 is to promote thankfulness people to God on the part of us Gentile Christians. They should, we should, us Gentile Christians should always express our gratitude to the Father for the great deliverance he provided that, us through his, our faith in his son, Jesus Christ, and our union identification with him. Thus, we should live our lives in a manner which reflects this new relationship that we have with the Father through our union identification with his son which we received through the baptism of the Spirit, the moment the Father declared us justified through faith in His Son. Now, the fifth and final reason, as we pointed out, and uh, the, the, fourth, uh, the fifth and final reason that Paul issues this command in Ephesians 2.11 is so that these Gentile Christians, you and I, will ultimately praise the Father for His glorious grace policy, which He exercised toward us, again, when we were spiritually dead and possessed absolutely no relationship with Him and His covenant people Israel. It's very, very important. So uh, we should give thanks. So that is uh, the, the, the five reasons. If you look at the big picture here in Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22, uh, the big picture, we're to remember where we came from, what we used to be, having no relationship with Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and no relationship to Jewish Christians either. And because we weren't in a covenant relationship like Jewish Christians were prior to their justification. And so uh, we should, this should cause us to give thanks, praise God. It should promote unity amongst us when we interact with each other. Very, very important. So today we're going to look at the, the, the fourth and fifth uh, descriptions of Gentile Christians before their justification. So uh, let's read my translation of the uh, second chapter. All right, it says, now correspondingly, even though each and every one of you as a corporate unit were spiritually dead ones because of your transgressions, 
In other words, because of your sins, each and every one of you formerly lived by means of these in agreement with the standard of the unregenerate people of this age, which is the production of the cosmic world system in agreement with the standard of the sovereign ruler, namely the sovereign governmental authority ruling over the evil spirits residing in the Earth's atmosphere. Specifically, the spirit who is presently working in the lives of those members of the human race who are characterized by disobedience. Then he says in verse 3, among whom each and every one of us also formally, for our own selfish benefit, conduct in our lives by means of those lusts which are produced by our flesh, specifically by indulging those inclinations which are produced by our flesh. In other words, those impulses which are the product of our flesh. Consequently, each and every one of us caused ourselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of our natural condition from physical birth, just as the rest correspondingly caused themselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of their natural condition from physical birth. But because God is rich with regards to mercy, because of the exercise of his great love with which he loved each and every one of us, even though each and every one of us is a corporate unit, we're spiritually dead ones because of our transgressions. He caused each and every one of us to be made alive together with the one and only Christ. Each one of you as a corporate unit are saved because of grace. Specifically, he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be raised with him. Correspondingly, he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be seated in the heavenlies because of our faith in and union identification with Christ Jesus. And then he says in verses 7 and 8, he says he did this so that he could display for his own glory during the ages which is certain to come, the incomparable wealth, which is the product of his grace because of kindness for the benefit of each one of us because of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus. Each and every one of you as a corporate unit are saved because of grace by means of faith. In other words, this salvation never originated from any one of you as a source. It originated as a gift from God. Verses, verse 9 and 10 he goes on to say, it does not originate the salvation from meritorious actions as a source so that a person cannot for their own benefit enter into the state of boasting. For each one of us are his creative workmanship. For each and every one of us has been created by means of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus in order to produce actions which are divine good. These God prepared in advance so that each of us would conduct our lives by means of them. Then he says in verse 11, he says, therefore, each and every one of you as a corporate unit must continue to make it your habit of remembering that formerly each of you who belong to the Gentile race with respect to the human body, specifically those who received the designation uncircumcision by those who received the designation circumcision with respect to the human body performed by human hands. Each one of you used to be characterized as without a relationship with Christ. Each one of you used to be alienated from the nation of Israel's citizenship, specifically each of you used to be strangers to the most important promise, which is the product of the covenants. Each of you used to not possess a confident expectation of blessing. Consequently, each one of you used to be without a relationship with God in the sphere of the cosmic world system. However, because of your faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus, all of you, without exception, as a corporate unit who formerly were far away, have now been brought near by means of the bud belonging to the same Christ. For he, Christ, himself personifies our peace, namely by causing both groups to be one, specifically by destroying the wall, which served as the barrier, that is, that which caused hostility between the two races and the two with God. And he's talking about the law there. And, and this, we know in verse 15, identifies it as such. 
He says, in other words, by nullifying by means of his human nature, the law composed of the commandments, consisting of a written code of laws, that he might cause the two races, Jew and Gentile, to be created into one new humanity by means of faith in himself at justification and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. Thus he caused peace to be established between the two races and the two races with God. Then he says in verse 16, he says, in other words, skipped here sorry about that and it says in verse 16 in other words things are flipping all over the place in other words in order that he would reconcile both groups into one body to god the father through his cross his son's cross consequently he put to death the hostility between the two races and the two races with god by means of faith in himself at justification and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the spirit at justification correspondingly correspondingly he as a result came proclaiming peace for the benefit of each one of you, namely those who were far off, likewise peace to those who were near. Consequently, through the personal intermediate agency of himself, each and every one of us as a corporate unit in the Christian community, namely both groups are experiencing access by means of the omnipotence of the one spirit to the presence of the Father. Then he says in verse 19, Indeed, therefore each and every one of you, as a corporate unit, are no longer foreigners to the covenants of promise, that is, foreign citizens, but each... Rather, each and every one of you as a corporate unit are fellow citizens with the saints, that is, members of God's household. Why? Because each and every one of you as a corporate unit, sorry about that, where is it? <laughs> but each and every one, because each and every one of you as a corporate unit have been built upon the foundation, which is the communication of the gospel to you by the apostles as well as prophets. Simultaneously, he himself, namely Christ Jesus, is the cornerstone on the basis of its being continually fitted inextricably together by means of justification by faith and union and identification with him, the whole building is growing into a holy temple by appropriating by faith union and identification with the Lord. And then he says in verse 22, in other words, by appropriating by faith your union and identification with him, all of you without exception are being built together into, the, into God's dwelling place by means of the omnipotence of the Spirit. Now, we have, it's a promise, we're going to do the fourth and fifth description in verse 12 of Gentile Christians prior to their justification. And the fourth description, as we saw in the, uh, the New English Bible and the Net Bible and also my translation, the fourth description of the unregenerate state of Gentile Christians prior to their justification to Christianity, or conversion to Christianity, and the, which is their justification, Paul presents here in verse 12. Uh, he's describing them as being characterized as not possessing a confident expectation of blessing. Uh, the Net Bible says, it says, uh, having no hope. And uh, the, the NAB, NEB, they have translated, uh, let's see what they have. Uh, Your world was without hope. And my translation is markedly different, and I'll explain why. And uh, the reason why is because the word L piece. And so uh, we see here, each one of you used to not possess, possess a confident expectation of blessing. So the word hope there, L piece. Uh, it, it's actually uh, talking about uh, a confident expectation of blessing. Well, I don't like the translation hope, and here's why. And I wish they would change this. And, and, and a lot of these scholars work on it. They, I, I, I think hope is just a, such a good word that people, but it gives the a sense, it has the connotation of doubt, doesn't it? I hope she goes out with me. You know, I hope I, I hope I get a raise. I hope, uh, you know, whatever. I hope I get married. I hope I have kids. Hope, hope. There's, there's some doubt there. But this word doesn't contain any doubt. It talks about a confident expectation that you're going to get blessed by God. That's what it's talking about. So, the fourth 
description of the unregenerate state of Gentile Christians prior to their conversion to Christianity, which Paul presents here in verse 12, describes them as being characterized as not possessing a confident expectation of blessing. So, if we compare the command to remember in verse 11 with this fourth description of these Gentile Christians prior to their conversion to Christianity in verse 12, Paul wants these Gentile Christians, and that would be you and I if we're Gentile Christians, to continue to make it our habit of remembering that we used to be characterized as not possessing a confident expectation of blessing. So this word L piece, confident expectation of blessing, the referent for this is the church age believers receiving a resurrection body at the rapture, resurrection of the church, which is imminent, and rewards immediately after at the Bema seat for faithful service. Rewards from the Lord Jesus Christ. So you and I, as Gentile Christians, we appropriated this confident expectation of blessing at justification when we were simultaneously identified with the Father, Son, Jesus Christ in His crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session at the right hand of the Father. So we're to remember this, people. Us Gentile Christians, we must remember what we used to be, not in a relationship with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and not in a a covenant relationship with God like the nation of Israel is. And so you and I were treated, we're in pretty rough shape prior to our justification. Now, through faith in His Son, and based upon that, the merits of the object of faith, Jesus Christ, uh, and our uh, union identification with him, the merits of that, you and I have a confident expectation of being perfected in a resurrection body at the rapture, resurrection of the church, which is imminent. And immediately following that, if we're faithful in this life, we get rewards for faithful service. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15, actually in context of communicators of Bible doctrine. And then uh, he also mentions it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the baby seat. The judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat means a bema seat. It's called bema. In the in the ancient world, the Olymp- in the various athletic games like the Olympic games, uh, they would uh, there be a, a bema seat. In fact, there's a place in Corinth, the unearthed us, where the judge who gave out the rewards for the those who won the different athletic events. Now, uh, the, the 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 purpose of that seat was not to bring condemnation on anybody, because it was just a, ter- a place to determine who who merits rewards. So it's the same thing. That's why Paul used this word, famously. So it's a place not to, we're, we're safe from the wrath of God through faith in Christ at justification. There's, no, there's, there's uh, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Remember Romans 8.1? It's emphatic there. Okay? So now, we, this is our confident expectation of blessing. This should motivate us to stay faithful. And to, it also should give us the strength to, be, uh, to persevere to our various trials and tribulations, which many of us are going through at this time. Now, the fifth and final description in verse 12 of the unregenerate state of these Gentile Christians, which, who Paul's writing to, uh, it presents the result of the fourth description of them. It indicates that they were characterized as being without a relationship with God in the sphere of the cosmic world system of Satan as a result of not possessing a confident expectation of blessing. So if you look at the Net Bible, it says, having no hope, and then the next one, Without God in the world, that's the result of having no hope, no confident expectation of blessing. You're without God, a relationship with Him, in the world, as we'll point it out, in the world means uh, not just simply that we're in this on this earth, but that we are part of, uh, uh, surrounded by a world system that's dominated by Satan, the cosmic world system of Satan, and we'll talk about that in detail uh, shortly for the rest of the class. And so... We see the Gentile Christians entered into a relationship with God and simultaneously possess a confident expectation of blessing when the Father declared us justified through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. So 
Remember, each one of these descriptions of the of Gentile Christians prior to their justification in verse 12 is to be remembered. So if we compare them with the command in verse 11 to remember, we compare it with this fifth and final description of these Gentile Christians prior to their conversion to Christianity in Ephesians 2.12. Paul wants us Gentile Christians and the recipients of this letter back in the 2,000 years ago to continue to make it their habit of remembering that they used to be characterized as without a relationship with God in the sphere of the cosmic world system. So this final description of unregenerate Gentiles does not mean that they were atheists, but rather that they did not possess a relationship with the God of Israel, who is the true God. So remember the Gentiles, they were far from being uh, atheists. Uh, The Gentiles in Paul's day worshiped the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods, Paul references this when he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 8, 5, and 6. And also Galatians, he did that with them. Galatians 4, 8, 1 Thessalonians 4, 5 as well. And thus they were far from being atheists. In fact, that, you know, it's kind of interesting. American culture, Western culture is pretty interesting with the, the advent of atheists, atheism and stuff. There's no God. Uh, the people of the ancient world would think you're crazy. If you, if you were an atheist, said that. Very rarely you found atheists in the ancient world in Paul's day. Uh, it's actually, quite frankly, uh, really took off in the, the, with the Enlightenment. And uh, we saw, because that's, you know, basically in, you know, in modernism, postmodernism. You know, it's basically uh, enthroning mankind as the god of this world. And, uh, you know, and we're, we're so wonderful. And, uh, but no, it's, uh, we, you know, we, we, you know, even though creation and it's evident within human beings, as Paul says in Romans 1, 18 through 31, that uh, there is a God. It's evident within each person, it says, and outside of the person in creation. It's, uh, it, creation's too complex. You and I are too complex. Just your mind, human soul is beyond, you're going to tell me that this, that just happened by natural processes. Come on, will you? That's, that's, like, that's ridiculous. You're insulting my intelligence. <laughs> you know? In other words, I could say to you, and frankly, as we would say in Massachusetts, no, a dummy would say you would think that there's no God, <laughs> and you know so people are in in, in uh, rejection of God uh, because they love their lifestyle. They don't want to be accountable to God. They they want to sin. They love sin, and they don't want to be told what to do like the devil, and they like their father the devil. John eight forty four. So uh, the the back in Paul's day, nobody really was an atheist. They in fact uh, you would insult the gods by not worshiping the gods of the city. If you didn't offer them, you know, didn't worship them, uh, the, the, they were they were of the opinion that then the gods of the city, who are actually basically fallen angels who promote this, um, they're going to uh, bring a war on us or an earthquake or some kind of disaster, disease, famine, and uh, it's all because you didn't worship the god of the city. So that's why Christianity was such a threat uh, to the world. Uh, you know, they, that's why Christians were persecuted, not just Jewish Christians, but Gentile Christians. Uh, remember, Gentile Christians, if you believed in Jesus Christ, when you did that you at your baptism, you were basically declaring, I worship Jesus Christ to the exclusion of these gods, who I, my, my God says are false gods and the, the, the brainchild of Satan and his angels and his, his, spirit, his fellow evil spirits. That's why, that's what they would, so that's what the Christian was saying. And that's what we're saying. You know, all these other gods are, you know, Allah, he's not the true and living God, or this God is not the true and living, Buddha's not that, you know, we, that's what Christians are saying, we're exclusive, but we're inclusive because God desires all people to be saved and have a relationship with him, right? 
1 Timothy 2, 4, 2 Peter 3, 9, he desires all people to be saved. John 3, 16 through 18, that famous passage. But Christianity in that sense is all-inclusive. God wants everyone to believe in his son. He sent his son to die for everyone. And, but also it's exclusive, meaning we worship Jesus to the exclusion of the gods of this world. Okay? That, so uh, that's very, very important. I got a couple of quotes here, and let me see if I can find them here for you. Uh, just let me uh, scroll through my notes here. And uh, with uh, this will be on our website. Uh, it's the Exegesis and Exposition of, of Ephesians 2, 12. And I just want to uh, pull up a, a couple of quotes here. And uh, one was by Clinton Arnold, who did, has done a lot of work on, uh, the, he was a great, he's a great commentator, but he had a great comment about uh, the, the, this, um, you know, the ancient people in the ancient world were not, uh, they were not uh, atheists. So Clinton Arnold writes, here is the quote right here. That wasn't too bad. It took me a little longer than I wanted to. But he writes the following, and this is from his, uh, a quotation from his commentary on Ephesians. He says, on the surface, it may seem strange that Paul indicts the polytheistic Gentiles for being godless. The word from which is derived the English atheist. The Greeks and Romans surely were not atheists. In fact, their own writers used this term to criticize people who did not believe in the existence of certain gods or who lived in pious lives before these gods. Some even turned the tables and charged the Jews with being godless because of their lack of reverence for the traditional gods. What Paul means here, however, is that the Gentiles were alienated from the one true God, who is the source of life. Paul has no concern about the degree of their devotion to Artemis, Hecate, Isis, Zeus, or any of the local deities. His concern is that they did not know the one God who made the heavens and the earth. And then he says, although this is the only time the term appears in either the Septuagint or the New Testament, Paul's use of this expression uh, influenced the subsequent generations of Christians who could refer to pagans as godless, end of quote. So he says um, this phrase, atheos, uh, without God, okay? So he's not saying that without, again, as, as Clinton Arnold was pointing out, not saying that they were atheists, okay? He's not saying that. He's just saying you're without a relationship with the true and living God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. That's what he's talking about here. Because the people of the ancient world worshipped, were not atheists at all. They believed in the existence of gods. So, we'll finish out the class here today by noting this word for world. If you see the Net Bible, it says, the last description of Gentile Christians in verse 12, prior to their justification, is that we were without God in the world. Okay, that word world is an interpretive issue here. Uh, it's translated without God. Actually, it says your, your world was without hope. Without, uh, your world was a world without hope and without God. I don't like that translation at all by the New English Bible translation. They had some other good translations earlier in the passage, but not there. But, uh, and let me see, I'll show you here, the uh, bring up some other ones, the ESV. I'll blow this up here for you so you can see the ESV's translation. It says, uh, without God in the world. So most modern translations translate it within the world, okay? So what's this word world? Because the reason I'm making it, uh, bringing this up and talking about it is because there's an interpretive issue among uh, scholars and uh, inter uh, interpreters of, the, of this passage with regards to the, the word cosmos, uh, which appears in the final description since some expositors believe it refers to planet Earth as the habitation of human beings. So cosmos uh, here is, uh, is means world. Now, on the other hand, others believe that, and I'm of that the same opinion, that the referent uh, of this word 
it uh, is uh, the cosmic world system. So in other words, others believe that the word, like myself, retain, that this word retains the same referent here in verse 12 as it did in verse 2, namely the cosmic world system, Satan. So if you look at verse 2, we say, it says, uh, according to this world's present path, okay? The world is, in that passage, is, is used in relation to Satan. He's the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience, the unbeliever. He's the ruler of the kingdom of the year. So I believe, and many others agree with me, that when he's talking about the world here, it's receive, uh, retaining its same referent that it had in verse 2. Okay? So, in the New Testament, this word cosmos, has world, means, has three main uses. And uh, we study this word in great detail in 1 John and other places. It's quite a bit. It's that, remember that great passage in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. So, uh, so we, we talked a lot about that. And uh, in particular, the third uh, meaning of this word that we're going to look at in a second here. So this word world, cosmos, has three main uses. Uh, one, it can refer to the orderly arrangement of the heavens or the earth and all things in their complex order and composition as created by God, created in perfect order and subject to the laws God established to govern its operation. That documentation, Matthew 13, 35, John 21, 25, and Acts 17, 24. However, the word also may refer to the world and its arrangement of the inhabitants of the earth and tribes and nations and peoples. Uh, Acts 17, 26 uses it, use it this way. John 3, 16. 1 Corinthians 4, 9, 1 John 2, 2, and 2 Peter 2, 5. Lastly, this word can be used of a vast system and arrangement of human affairs, earthly goods, godless governments, conflicts, riches, pleasures, culture, education, world religions, the cults, and the occult dominated and negatively affected by Satan, who is the god of this cosmic system. And uh, as we saw in 1 John chapter 2, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. So I believe, and many others do as well, that this word world here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, pertains to the cosmic world system that is ruled by the devil. Because in both Ephesians 2, 2 and 12, this word appears, cosmos, world, appears in a description of the recipients of this epistle prior to the conversion of Christianity. And in Ephesians 2, 2, the reference of this word is the cosmic world system of Satan. So the devil established his world system on the earth after the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. At that time, the devil became the god of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul talks about that. And he's the ruler of this world. Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world, the cosmic world, the system of Satan. Now the ruler of this world, cosmic world, system of Satan, will be driven out. It's used this, uh, we see it, uh, he's the ruler of this world. Jesus says this in John 14, 30 and uh, John 16, 11. In other words, he's the, he's the ruler of this world. But uh, again, he's been defeated. Jesus destroyed the works of the devil at the cross. And 1 John 3, 8, and we're going to, along with Jesus, the church, it's going to dispossess Satan and the fallen angels. And so this is one of the reasons they don't want this proclamation going out. That's why if you teach this message, whoever you are, you're going to be, you're going to be persecuted by the enemy and you're going to have a lot of trouble. And that's the way it goes. So um, if you do it, if you do decide to be a pastor, it, don't take this lightly. You better be ready to, for, for the onslaught if you're going to teach the truth. But if you're going to be like a lot of guys and just, you know, uh, 
play games and play church and, you know, just talk about uh, little social programs and don't want to teach the gospel and Bible doctrine. And you're just going to play church and you're just going to do ride hobby horses. The subjects are going to get people to give you money. And uh, if you're like that, you, you know, of course, you, they, they won't bother you. They won't give you a hard time. Only the people who are serious in the word of God will get trouble like the, uh, like many of us are getting trouble and, uh, and, uh, and being rejected by people, even in the church, of course. In great numbers now in America. So, the entire world is under Satan's authority. Luke 4, 6. 1 John 5, 19 says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Satan deceives the entire world. Revelation 12, 9 teaches us that. So the huge dragon, the ancient serpent, the one called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, was thrown down to the earth and his angels along with him. So therefore, people, and we'll close with this. When the noun cosmos... Uh, appears in Ephesians 2.12 and 2.2. It indicates that these Gentile Christians were living under the authority and deception of Satan's cosmic world system prior to their justification. So this word, which I translate the cosmic world system, pertains again to a vast system and arrangement of affairs, human affairs, earthly goods, godless governments, conflicts, riches, pleasures, culture, education, world religions, the cults and the occult dominated and negatively affected by Satan who is the god of this satanic cosmic system. So listen to me. This is why our country is a mess. Because we're part of the system, this country. Uh, remember, there's only one elect angel, uh, Michael, who's over any nation on the earth. And, and the rest of the nations are governed by satanic rulers. Read Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. And so, so basically, Satan's evil spirits are governing this world. He has a military just like us. Like Satan, God does. Uh, look, look at it. He gives you the uh, the uh, the uh, satanic order of battle in Ephesians six twelve. Okay, the same book which we're going to study that passage. So, uh, this is what this is the world system that we're in, and this is why our country is a mess. And this is why you should pray for our leaders who are under attack. Whether you like them or not, be smart. You want to live a tranquil, quiet life. You want all people to be saved, like God does. First Timothy two one through eight says, "Pray for your leaders, whether you like them or not." Whether you're party or not, don't be stupid. Look at, oh, I say don't be stupid because you're a Christian. You should know Bible doctrine. You should know the Word of God. And the Word of God teaches this. You're supposed to pray for everybody, whether you like them or not. Because they're under God's authority. They'll be held accountable. So uh, obey God. But because you want to listen to your favorite conservative or liberal commentator and put them on a higher level than what the Holy Spirit's teaching us in the Word of God, go right ahead and God will deal with you. Trust me. So this word, world, cosmos, it's the object of the preposition N, and it indicates, this word, that this sphere in which these Gentile Christians used to exist in the state of not possessing a relationship with God prior to their justification. So therefore, this prepositional phrase, ento cosmo, indicates that these Gentile Christians, prior to their conversion to Christianity, used to exist in the state of not possessing a relationship with God in the sphere of the cosmic world system, quote-unquote, that is ruled by the devil himself. So we were in pretty bad shape prior to becoming Christians. So this system, again, is promoted by Satan, conformed to his ideals, aims, methods, and character, stands perpetually in opposition to God, the cause of Christ. So the reason why your country has crazy laws, you have crazy leaders and crazy laws they want to implement and do, people doing stupid things and saying stupid things, like common sense has left our country. Guess what? It's, we're in the devil's world. What do you expect? Grow up and wake up if you do, as a Christian. Come on. This is what we're in. It's in you're in, un, behind enemy lines. You're in the battle here. 
wake up. And if you, you're living in a fantasy, if you don't face, face up to these things, you know, uh, you know, you know, unless our leaders are dedicated Christians or involved in the word of God, probably most of them are not believers. And if they are believers, they're probably not very mature. Maybe we do have some mature believers in our, in our government at different levels. I'm sure we do, but uh, they're not the dominant ones. Trust me right there. So we are a mess as a country and the world's a mess because uh, who's ruling the, running the show and human beings and the devil doesn't want you to know he exists. He wants you to, he, you know, he liked you to think that he's wearing a cute little suit and, you know, with a pitchfork and everything. I mean, that's what he, most Christians, they don't have, they think that, oh, they also think when they think of uh, Satan, they think about, you know, the exorcist and, you know, the spin in the head. Hey, he's involved in that stuff too, but he's much, much smarter than that. He'll do, and this leads to my, my other point, this cosmic world system of Satan, I talked about this on Sunday in our series on Habakkuk, this world system of Satan is designed to seduce people away from God and the person of Christ. As I said, to my, and I've said it to many times here, and to the group over here at DBC, that Satan, he uses idolatry, and idolatry today is much more sophisticated than it was back in the ancient world. You could be idolatrous by living sexually immoral lives as a Christian, living outside the bounds of sex, which is supposed to be designed for marriage. Uh, you could uh, also be the god of, of, of relationships. You make your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your husband, your wife, your, your, as your god. They're more important. Your love for them is more important than your love for Jesus. That's why Jesus said, he who does not hate his father and mother is not worthy to be my disciple. And he's the same one that told you to honor your father and mother. What is he doing? He's using hyperbole for emphasis, meaning your, your love for Jesus, which is manifested by your obedience. If you love me, you keep my commandments, John 14, 15, is manifested that, that your love for him should be greater than your love for parents. Let me put it this way. So you know, as I lead by example, I have a mother and father, okay? My mother, my father's 84. He's not in great health. He could go at any time. He's got a bad heart. My mother's dying of dementia. I'm down here. I'm down here teaching God. I went to Iowa years ago, and I did that knowingly. I love my family. Everybody knows me. You ever see my family very close, but I'm here. My, my brother Kenny was dying, and he, I, he, and I knew he was dying. I came here. And he said he said to go, too. So I love Jesus more than I love my family. Doesn't mean I don't love my family. He's more, I'm more, he's more important to me than them because he gave me them. As my mother taught me when I was a little boy laying in the bed at four years old, you know, I said, I love you more than Jesus. She said, don't say that. He gave me to you. He gave you to me as a gift. So, uh, so this is, this, this is serious business people. So you could be an idolatrous person. Anything you put ahead of your relationship with God, in particular, your obedience to God is, is, uh, is, uh, is idolatry. And uh, you, he comes first. He comes first. Not what you want, it's what he wants. You know? Well, maybe he doesn't want you to be married. Well, you're going to have to face up to that fact. You might have, you, you, if he tells you that, then you got to accept it. And you can say no, and you can run around in the world until you find somebody, get married to the wrong person. Better be single and would not marry to the wrong person. Okay? It's better to be single. Just, I know a lot of people like that. So if you're with, you know, so very important. So uh, sports, People everywhere, college football is a god to people. In fact, I was talking to a friend of mine that uh, the NFL, the NFL runs Sundays. It used to be the church. Church was most important on Sundays in this country. Not anymore. You know what's more important? The, the stupid football games. By the way, the NFL stinks now. I mean, it's like since Tom Brady left, 
It's they, I mean, they're terrible. The games are terrible. Monday night game last night was horrible. I was kind of had one eye on it as if somebody was watching. It was like, but joke. They they don't even. It's like terrible. College football is a god in this country. It's, it's everywhere. Professional sports where I grew up in Massachusetts is a god. Tim, Tom Brady's a god to many people. Bobby Orr was. It was my when I was a kid. They're they're the entertainers, musicians. I used to do the same thing. The Beatles were a god. In fact, John Lennon was con was condemning people for doing that when he said we're bigger than Jesus. He's saying he's making an observation. He's saying, you know, they're treating they they the young people think more of us than they do of Jesus. And he was not saying that was right. He said, but people wanted to distort that. And some crazy guy down here in Alabama wanted to make a name for himself and burn Beatle records. Oh, that's really going to stop the problem. But he's what was he complaining about? People are in idolatry. They make it, we make entertainers out to be a god. And there's even pastors out there who think they're such hot stuff that they, they're, in, they're promoting idolatry by, you know, making themselves out to be bigger than Jesus. You know, they, they, you know there's, I'm the only show in town. I heard a guy say like that, pastor say that one time, or heard about it, and well, he ain't walking the earth anymore. The Lord dealt with his, his, his arrogant son of a gun. People like that go all over the place. Idolatry is anything... You know, Satan's trying to seduce us away from worshiping the true and living God, Jesus Christ. And lastly, cosmic world system of Satan is anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Bible, and very anti-humanity, though it often appears as humanitarian as part of Satan's masquerade as an angel of light. So this word cosmos is not only a system, but also an organization, an organization that which is Organized. Webster's New Universal Unabridged Dictionary defines the verb organize as one to form as or into a whole consisting of interdependent or coordinated parts, especially for harmonious or united action. Two, to systemize. So if we paraphrase this definition, we could say that the noun world here in Ephesians 2.12 refers to the formation into a whole of interdependent and coordinated parts for harmonious and united action against God. Webster's New Universal Unabridged Dictionary defines a system as an assemblage, a combination of things or parts forming a complex or unitary whole, due method or orderly manner of manage, arrangement or procedure, end of quote. So if we paraphrase that definition, we could say that this word world here in Ephesians 2.12 and in Ephesians 2.2 refers to the assemblage of fallen angels or evil spirits forming a complex that is under the authority of Satan. So this cosmic system is not a theocratic or Christocentric society, organization or system, because it's designed by Satan to seduce people away from worshiping Jesus Christ and obeying him. Satan uses temptations to incorporate even believers into his system, an organization that is independent of God. Let me give you an example. A good friend of mine, who I love deeply, he was married to a woman who was much younger than him. And, uh, you know, when he got married to her, uh, that was it. I hadn't seen him. He was a big part of my ministry. And I hardly ever saw him anymore. And the years slipped by. Well, finally they broke up. And uh, they broke up. And uh, now he, 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 he confessed to me that, hey, I was involved in idolatry. She was, uh, you know, idol for me. It took him. It, he, that's what happened to King Solomon. So he's in good company. King Solomon's love for his foreign wives is the reason why he took away the kingdom from uh, Rehoboam, his son. He didn't do it to Solomon because of his father David. So Satan, uh, Solomon loved his foreign wives at the end of his life more than obedience to God. He was involved in syncretism. We studied that in our study of Zephaniah. So if that can happen to Solomon, the wisest man in the ancient world, it can happen to you and I. Okay? So very important 
But we see what, and now if we go, close it all it up here, where are we, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, look at uh, verses 11 through 13. We need to remember something as Gentile Christians. What do we need to remember? Look at this on the board again. And the Net Bible, Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, we'll close. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, the Jews, that is performed on the body by human hands, that you were at that time without the Messiah, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Give thanks to God. Stay humble. Worship Him. Praise Him for what He did for us at our justification to the baptism of the Spirit and placing us in union with Christ and part of the new humanity with Jewish Christians. What a great God we have. So how should we live? We should live lives practicing the command to love one another, being humble toward each other, and also praising God, giving thanks to God, and, uh, mean, uh, and living our lives in a manner consistent with who God made us to be. And uh, that's what we need to do. Our lives, our conduct of our lives should be governed with, by what God did for us in the past and what He's going to do for us in the future. When He's going to give us a resurrection body, the rapture of the church, which is imminent, and rewards the faithful service at the Bama seat, which immediately follows the rapture. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for joining us. Heavenly Father, we pray this. Thank you for this uh, lesson and time to gather together with other members of the body of Christ, whether they're live or through the recordings. I thank you for each and every one of them, and I pray the Spirit would do a mighty work through your people and bringing glory to you and your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray your people would receive the necessary spiritual nourishment and be encouraged and also challenged and, and exhorted and rebuke if necessary so that they can continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our great God and Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.